Amen, amen. It is so good to be together and to be together for, for the express purpose of studying God's Word and seeking Him through His Word. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is where we find ourselves in our series through the book of Genesis. And uh, I want to do just a brief recap as we uh, look at how far we've come and everything that we've seen to this point and everything that the Lord has been doing in the lives of His people and in, in the history, in the beginning, the history of this planet. And so we saw from the beginning God create the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And then we see him forming and shaping and filling that good creation which he made. And then from there, we moved to chapter 2 of Genesis, which we saw was a zoom in on day 6 of creation, where we saw up close the personal nature of God as he creates man in his image, man and woman. And then he sends them and puts them in the garden, a place where he had created the perfect boundaries for them to live in a perfect and good life and given them everything necessary. And then he gave them his word, his command. He gave them his word as a guide, as a protector, to not eat from the one tree. And we know, as we saw in chapter 3, we saw the fall. As the deceiver went about by twisting God's word and taking God's word out of context and then preying on the misunderstanding of God's word of, of Eve. And then we moved to, to last week in session 4 where we jumped ahead just a little bit to... Genesis chapter 6, where we began the flood narrative. And in the flood narrative, of course, we see things have quickly progressed and fallen out of, or really quickly digressed and fallen out of control because of that sin that entered God's good creation. We saw God look. Last week, we had as our first point that Genesis lays the foundation for the lasting effects of sin. And sadly, today, we'll see how this point carries through to the end of the narrative of the flood. So we saw how Noah was saved from God's wrath and declared righteous by grace through faith. That it was not anything in and of himself as God looked at the earth and saw the wickedness in the heart of man and that the heart of man was set against God at all times. And today we'll see how necessary God's grace is to sustain not just Noah, but us as well. And finally, last week we saw how Genesis lays the foundation for covenant relationship. As God promises Noah that he will establish a covenant with him and his offspring. And today, as we finish the narrative of the flood, we will see how covenant is necessary because God's grace is crucial for us, to sustain us, to keep us, to hold us, that God's grace is everything. And so I'll invite you and encourage you to stand again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Again, we do this to honor God's word and show that it, God's word is the very reason for which we are here, to hear from him. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, 
and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The, earth, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, give, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Verse 7, And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. And every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger, youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You may be seated this morning. God, as we look at your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that you would help, uh, through your Holy Spirit, give us insight and wisdom and discernment on how to best understand these things and best live out these things, the truths that you reveal to us in your word. And help us to live according to it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, seemingly normal things happen here at the end of the flood, right? <laughs> now, 
We have some, some different things that take place and we have this, this narrative that very clearly continues through from chapter 8 to chapter 9. And so in preparing this series, I was kind of torn between uh, finishing, between covering chapter 9 on its own or, or making it a part of the entire narrative, but I decided that doing chapters 6 through 9 would have been just too much, and so I decided to settle on covering chapter 9 on its own. But looking back to the end of chapter 8, Depending on how your translation is produced, you may notice how chapter 8 flows right into chapter 9. This is because chapter 9 is also part of the narrative, and it's, it's the conclusion to the flood narrative. See, today's text focuses our attention on the completion of the post-flood life of, of Noah and his descendants. As we saw, Noah and his family, they step off the ark at God's command last week. And the first thing we saw him do was worship. He worshiped God by building an altar and making a sacrifice to the Lord. And then here, and as we saw there in chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. And he presents this offering because if you'll recall, as God was giving him instruction on the animals that he was to bring onto the ark, he gave him additional instruction for the clean animals that he was to bring onto the ark for the specific purpose of beginning the sacrificial system, of preserving it and making it possible. Because if Noah steps off the ark and, cle- and kills the only two clean animals, then there are, no, there are no more left after that, right? So that doesn't make much sense. So God, in his foreknowledge, told Noah to bring on additionally all the necessary animals for sacrifice. Again, as Moses is the one writing this testament of what happened in these days. And we see in verse 21 of chapter 8, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so he responds. God responds to Noah's offering. And then we move there into chapter 9 to see the things that we just read of. So as we look at the flood narrative and all that it has to teach us about God and about man and about our relationship with one another and our relationship with God, we can't help but see that there is one overarching theme that is weaved into this story. And that is that the great flood is ultimately a narrative of God's mercy and grace. Now some of you might tilt your head and, and, and think a little bit like, like how in the midst of such loss and, and, and chaos and, and disruption in the world, mercy and grace? Well, really we see that God's mercy and grace are the, the thread which goes throughout all of Scripture. And all that God does flows from His nature. And we know of His nature by seeking Him in His Word. And he's given us his word out of his abundant grace. So like I said, you might be asking yourself, how, how, can it, how can this story be about God's mercy and grace when there's so much catastrophic loss of life? See, we don't often think of grace when we think of the flood, which wiped out all but one family of the earth. But as we discussed last week, the fact that God chose to preserve a remnant 
is itself an act of grace. When we look at the opening scene of this story, we're shown a very bleak outlook of the earth. That God looks at the earth and all he sees is the wickedness of the human heart. Which therefore means that all people are deserving of God's judgment and wrath in that moment. But God does what? He shows grace by declaring Noah righteous because of his faith. Therefore, God, he would have been right and just in destroying all mankind in that moment. But we see here in verse 1 of chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we begin chapter 9 with the continued parallel of the creation narrative. We covered this plenty last week on how the creation narrative, or how, excuse me, the flood narrative parallels the creation narrative as we see God purposefully working to recreate the earth, so to speak, as he brings about this flood to say that he is recreating the earth to rid the earth of evil. And similar to God's command to Adam and Eve, we see here Noah and his family are blessed with the command to be fruitful and multiply. It's the the same command we see given to Adam and Eve. And to fill the earth with God's image. And the mission here remains the same. To multiply God's image across creation. And this is described in the text as a blessing. That the fact that God gave them His word, once again, is a blessing, is an act of his grace. So as those made in God's image, we have been given the incredible blessing of God's grace to join him in his work by raising families that reflect his goodness and glory. That brings us to our next point, which is that God's grace is an act of his will. God's grace is an act of his will. As he blessed Adam and Eve in the garden, as he now then blesses Noah and his family, post-flood, stepping off of the ark, having been saved and preserved by God's grace, he now gives them the grace of having the same purpose because his word remains the same. The mission still stands to fill the earth and to multiply. And so by his will, he saved Noah and his family. Not by anything that they had done to coax his will, to coax his grace, or to earn God's favor, but he declared Noah righteous by grace through faith. So God's grace is an act of his will. Not my merit, not my coaxing, not something that I can achieve. It is not something which man can manipulate or manage. As we look back at chapter 6, before we're even told of Noah, we're told this in verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we saw that heartbreaking verse, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So look at the all-encompassing language of these verses from chapter 6. God looks at what was once good, which he had made and created and purposefully and intentionally created, and now it is completely stained by evil and it grieves his heart. 
Except we look at verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So as we discussed last week, that what was different about Noah? What was different about Noah than, the, than the, the age that he lived in, the people that he was surrounded by? He certainly had the same sin-stained heart that they did because this is what God looked and saw. The difference was that in the midst of his sinfulness, Noah maintained his faith with God. That he was stained with sin. He was sinful, but his faith in the Lord remained. Therefore, God credited it to him as righteousness. So again, it is by his will. God's grace is an act of his will. So it was an act of God's grace that the Lord saved anyone at all. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 2, where Paul is describing the judgment and grace of God. He has this to say in Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, if you're taking notes. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he lists some of those things in verse 1, but we we go on in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4 of Romans 2, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, there we see the kindness of God, the grace of God is meant to lead our hearts to realize our need to repent to God. But we see verse 5 there of Romans chapter 2. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So that God shows grace to anyone at all is in and of itself a miracle and something to be praised. That he allows us to have a chance to repent. And this brings up a point that I want us to notice this morning as, before we push forward into chapter 9. I know you're like, again, he's only covered one verse and we still, like, we still got a ways to go. So this brings up this point that's on full display here in the post-flood story. And that is different types of grace that we see displayed in Scripture. See, Calvin distinguished these as common grace and special grace. You'll see there on your outline, I've already provided that common grace is God's grace to all. That's what we saw there described in Romans 2. That's what we see described in the pre-flood. The fact that God even waited to send the flood was in and of itself an act of grace. And when we see an example of this in the beginning of this story, again, back at the start of chapter 6, as God looks at the earth, sees how depraved the human heart is, And it would have been completely just for him to pronounce judgment for the sin and for the heart of man right there on the spot. However, he allows everyone to live, both those sinful and destined to die and those declared righteous by grace through faith, which was Noah. Thus, this act of grace is common. It was given to all. See, this same measure of common grace is given to us today. The fact that God allows those who are lost 
to live. He allows us as sinful human beings to live to, that we may even understand and know and see his grace. This is a complete act of God's common grace. Yet, many do not turn to God. Why? Because of what Paul just explained for us there in verse 5. Their hearts are set against him, choosing to worship themselves. So common grace is not then an act of salvation. So what then is? The, the act of salvation then is special grace. What then is? That was great English right there. So that's the next point on your outline there. Special grace, which is God's grace to those in covenant with him. So this is so clearly displayed in the story, in the life of Noah, that God sees him, knows him, declares Noah righteous by grace through faith, and then preserves Noah and his family from the coming judgment by promising and initiating his covenant with him, that he may live to the glory of God as we saw there in verses 17 through 18 of chapter 6. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. But even in this, we see the glorious and mysterious grace of God to sinners like us. Because not only was this an act of special grace for Noah to preserve him and his family, but it was also an act of common grace for us. For through this act, God was both remaining faithful to his promise to Adam and Eve that he would send one from the line of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent but it's also an act of common grace for us that God not only preserved Noah, but that through Noah, he preserved the human race. So now, on the other side of the ark, again, we're going to get back to chapter 9. On the other side of the ark, as God has commanded Noah and his family to leave the ark, we see God exercising common grace once again. And in fact, Common grace is the theme of the remainder of the flood narrative. As we pick back up in verse 2 of chapter 9, we see the Lord say this to Noah, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. See, this is where the parallel between the creation narrative and the post-flood portion of the flood narrative differ. As Adam and Eve initially experience harmony with nature, as Adam is tasked with the, the purpose of, of naming the animals, and so they're living amongst each other, and there's harmony there. Because all was declared good and because God had placed them in the garden where they had all the food they needed. So there was no need to hunt. There was no need to gather because God had provided it all and declared it good. But now we see the post-fall curse still alive in that Noah and his family are told that their relationship with nature will be contentious. 
that the fear of them will be in all of nature. And this is yet another indicator that the stain of sin still existed in the heart of Noah. As God is once again giving his word to man and and giving it as a guide and and something that will uh, give him warning. And as we keep reading, we see God knowing the evil that is still alive in the heart of Noah and his family. He adds to his instruction given to Adam and Eve. You see, from the beginning, God's word has always deepened our dependence upon God as our provider, as our guide, and as our sustainer. And what we see here is God, once again, is giving his word as a guide, is telling them not to eat. In verse 4, not, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood, giving them clear indication on how they are to cleanly eat animals and not eat in an unclean manner. Again, as an act of protection for them, so that they will do what the Lord requires. But as we keep reading, we see this even further. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So now not only is the relationship between man and nature contentious because of sin, but now there is special regulation from God for how man is to handle not only that which they kill for food, but also regarding their treatment of one another. Again, the fact that God is giving his word is indication to us that sin is still alive in the heart of man here. As he's giving him his word as a warning. Verse 6 explicitly points us back to the first murder of Abel at the hand of his brother Cain. So now God places his word as a judgment against those who would kill another person made in the image of God. Once again, pointing to God's knowledge of the sinfulness still alive in the heart of Noah. And once again, highlighting one of our main points from last week, which is that sin infects deeper than deeds. Last week, we really emphasized how we often summarize or talk about sin in ways of our list of bad deeds, but how that, while maybe somewhat accurate, it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, which is that throughout Scripture, we see sin described as a condition of our heart, and that those bad deeds are simply a symptom of our infected sinful hearts. So if Noah were righteous according to his own merits... If Noah were without sin, why would God need to increase his law toward man post-flood? He wouldn't. Once again, highlighting the fact that everything that God did in preserving Noah was a complete act of his grace. And this is what we see in Romans 5. If you're taking notes, Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, 
as God saved Noah, preserved Noah in the ark, and we made this connection last week, so he preserves us, and not an ark, but in the cross of Christ. And that just as Noah was sinful, and God knew of Noah's sin, he still preserved Noah and declared him righteous by grace through faith. And so he does with us, that while we were still sinners, he preserved us in the cross, that he was at work on our behalf, showing us grace. We see in verse 9 of Romans 5, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So that as Christ has risen from the dead, so now we even more so have reason to rejoice. Church, let's not miss this. That even though Noah's heart was stained and infected by the same sin that caused God's wrath before the flood and that caused God to bring the flood, God showed grace by preserving Noah and his family as a remnant. And so too with us, that through that though God foreknew we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he sent Christ as the propitiation for our sin. And we see this as we continue reading, picking back in verse 8 of Genesis 9. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So to this point, God has stated the covenant earlier on. He's promised the covenant to Noah. However, the covenant has yet to be officially established. This, further, this is a further testimony to both Noah's faith to get on the ark and to follow God in obedience and God's faithfulness to his promises. And as we look, so this is the Noahic covenant. This is that is initiated here. This is the first official covenant that we see in Scripture. Initiated, promised, and established by God. Once again, showing God's grace. But when you look at the covenant itself, we can't help but see God's grace as His promise is that 
never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Showing us that God's grace is the foundation of covenant relationship. God's grace is the foundation of covenant relationship. See, the Noahic covenant is a covenant of common grace. As it is, as it extended, God extends this covenant not just to Noah, but to the entire animal kingdom, as well as to all generations to come. For the entire earth, this covenant is established. And what's more, as I just pointed out, it is God who promised the covenant. It is God who initiated the covenant and was faithful to preserve Noah. And then it was God who established the covenant. So outside of God's grace, we have no ability to be in relationship with him. As we look throughout scripture, we see that covenant is not just the promise of God's grace, but is only possible because of God's grace. If covenant were dependent upon us, if, if it were dependent upon us to be made in right relationship with God and to keep and to uphold that relationship, we would break it before the metaphorical ink was dry. And this is why the good news of what we see declared in Isaiah 54. Turn to Isaiah 54 because this is just, uh, you know, this was too good for me to just tell you to, to make a note of it as I was preparing earlier this week and I made this connection and saw this, I, I got really excited. Isaiah 54. We see this very idea extended of God's grace and covenant. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will... And will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Verse 9, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So what is this talking about? What are, what are, what are we looking at here? As, I mean... 
We saw there in verses 9 and 10 the clear reference to the covenant of Noah. Well, this is the prophet Isaiah prophesying to the people of God, and he's telling them this message from the Lord to sing, O barren one, to rejoice the one who was once barren, because you are about to have more children than she who has been married for a long time. He tells them to enlarge the place of your tent, lengthen your stakes, because you're about to have more people as a part of your family, more people as a part of the people of God. And he says to fear not, He says, once I I abandoned you, I sent you into exile for my purposes, but now I am here with you. He says, the Lord has called you like a wife, deserved it and grieved in spirit. For a brief moment, I deserted you. And he says, this is like the days of Noah to me. He says, "I'm, I'm getting ready to establish a covenant. So why is the Lord encouraging the people of God here in Isaiah to sing? Why is he telling them to enlarge their tent, to prepare room for their numbers to grow? Why is he recounting the covenants of old? We'll turn back to Isaiah 53. We see the answer in Isaiah 53. Starting in verse 2. We get the context of why God is telling the people of God to celebrate and to rejoice and that their family is about to expand. Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquitted with grief. And as one from whom the men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is clear prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so here we see the reason that he's telling the people to expand their tent stakes and to prepare room for more family is because he is making a way for them to be in right relationship with God and not just them, but for all who would surrender their lives and acknowledge the work of Christ on the cross. See, in Jesus, God has once again done the work that we could not do and established a new covenant sealed by the blood of Christ that those whom he draws near would have their hearts washed and renewed. See, the late R.C. Sproul is quoted as saying this, the grounds of our justification are the perfect works of Jesus Christ. We're saved by works, but they're not our own. Oh, church, that we may attempt to grasp this, that Noah was saved, that he was justified, declared righteous, not by his own merit, but by the grace of God. And because of the immutable and unchanging nature of God, as it is with us, that we have a new and more perfect covenant, a justification which cannot be washed away, 
but a justification which has renewed our sinful heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, a covenant which was established and won by the work of Christ on the cross. And as we continue to look and see the things that develop in this story after God establishes his covenant with Noah, we see the necessity of that new and better covenant in the work of Christ on the cross. Because I also came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon, that every humble sinner will feel that he deserves no mercy, but grace alone can save him. So after the establishment of such a gracious covenant by God, we should finish this story with a testimony of Noah's heartfelt obedience to the Lord, right? And how he lived uprightly and righteously all the rest of his days. Well, as some of the chuckles, as some of you were listening, paying attention as we read through the entire text earlier, that's not the case. We'll pick back up in Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So we'll pause right there. There are a few things here which indicate that a considerable amount of time has passed since the covenant was established. So first, we have one of Noah's grandsons is referenced here, indicating that enough time had passed for Ham's wife to give birth. Second, we see Noah planted a vineyard. And I'm no horticulturist, although I, I know, somewhat know my way around a garden. But it takes a significant amount of time to plant a vineyard and then to also see the produce of that vineyard and then to do things with the produce of that vineyard. So this shows us that a significant amount of time has take, taken place here. And it's abundantly clear as we continue reading, picking back up in verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So now that God has poetically recreated the earth, established the first covenant, Noah and his family step off the ark in utter bliss, and Noah worships God by constructing an altar, and now they live in covenant bliss with God, and they sin no more, right? As we just saw, that is very wrong. One of our points last week was that Noah was saved and declared righteous by grace through faith, as we've already discussed today, and that sin still existed in his heart. And here in chapter 9, we see sin live in the, uh, live and well in the heart of Noah. And this is evidenced by his actions. See, Noah exhibited great faith and extraordinary obedience and he was faithful to remain obedient to God's call and faithful through the flood, worshiped God in thanks of his glory and grace. And now, after all this, here lays the same man, exposed, drunk, and passed out on the floor of his tent. See, what the narrative of the flood presents us with is the truth that even the most righteous among us are in need of God's grace. And as you'll see as our next point there, that we are in constant need of God's grace. That when we look at this story and we see the wickedness of the human heart, we cannot help but see God's grace and consider the justness of God. See, the flood washed away the evil, but not completely, because evil still existed in the human heart, even in the heart of the one who God preserved. 
God looked at the earth, saw that it was evil, and this included Noah. It was only by God's grace and design that Noah and his family were allowed to live, yet they never stopped needing God's grace. See, when we grow complacent and we attempt to rely on our own righteousness, we find ourselves exposed on the floor. And this exposes our need to be in constant posture of repentance because we are in constant need of repentance. See, the repentance, repentance places us in a constant posture of humility rather than a posture of humiliation. And repentance is that steady reminder of God's good grace, both common and special. That self-righteousness will lead us to humiliation and ruin time and again. See, Moses doesn't comment on the heart of Noah here. And I suppose it's because he doesn't need to. See, the man we see before the flood, before the ark, before the covenant, is in just as much need of God's grace as the man after all of this. And we see as we continue looking at the rest of the chapter here, Noah wakes up and finds out that Ham had mocked him to his older brothers. And so he curses Ham's family line by cursing Canaan. It would be a servant. And we know that from the line of Canaan come the Canaanites. And we see throughout Scripture what takes place between the rivalry between the people of God and the Canaanites. And then he blesses Shem and Japheth for their actions. And then after the flood, Noah goes on to die. What I want to end our sermon with this morning is with an encouragement to all of us to consider our relationship with the Lord, to consider the grace of God that is necessary to, to bring us into relationship with Him, and then also consider the call that God has placed on all of us, which is that same call that He placed on Noah and his family after stepping off the ark, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with God's image. And that we all have an obligation to not only enjoy the grace that God has shown us, but to share the, God, the grace that God has shown us, that he has called us to be at work for his glory, and we know that that will be for our good. So with that, as we prepare to, to wrap things up, I want to challenge all of us to write down the name of our one. Whether that's in scripture journal, type it out on a phone, whatever that looks like for you, but to write out the name of the one person, the, the one person that you are going to commit to having a gospel-centered conversation with and to share the grace of God, of, that he, of what he has shown you, the grace that God has shown you in your life, to share that same grace and testify to that grace in the life of someone else. Let's pray. God, we love you as we enter now into a time of response through song. I pray that you would strike the hearts of all of us to be obedient to your call, to make disciples of all nations, to share your grace, to make your grace known so that those who are lost may see, so that you may move in their hearts, draw them to yourself. God, convict us where we have been out of step 
with this. Convict us where we have abused or taken advantage of or, or not acknowledged your grace to us. And help us to, to walk forward in a life that is abundantly thankful for your grace and that also shares your grace with the world around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.